Hello, this is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust, our podcast series which examines from a range of different perspectives how firms are tackling the issue of consumers in vulnerable situations. Today's podcast was recorded in front of a live internet studio audience bringing together people from across the UK, so therefore you might notice the sound quality in some parts does reflect this. Hello, my name's Chris Fitch, welcome to Vulnerability Matters and to our new series on working in a crisis. Now, as you might know, our current series of conversations are all about the work that essential service providers in financial services, energy, water, telecommunications and beyond are doing in supporting customers in the UK during the current coronavirus pandemic. And with each conversation, we're really trying to get to the nub, to the heart of the matter, about what represents good practice when working with such customers who've been affected by COVID-19, but also about the lessons that we can draw from this for our wider work with customers in vulnerable situations. So far, we've had some absolutely fascinating conversations. We've talked about bereavement, uh, dealing with customers in emotional crisis, and about the resilience and well-being of our staff in the middle of all of this. Today we're talking about something I've wanted to cover for a while, serious physical illness. Now thankfully we're all very used now to talking about mental health. However, we very rarely have conversations about physical health in quite the same way. And maybe that's sensible, as we'll probably discover later on in this conversation. But one thing that is really clear is that a diagnosis of a serious physical illness can have a devastating impact on a customer. It can lead to a reduction in income, due to reductions in working hours, people giving up work completely, or partners or family members doing the same to become carers. It can lead to an increase in costs, such as higher heating bills from being at home more, or costs of transport to medical appointments. And it can really impact in physical and emotional terms on the individual. So what do we do in supporting customers like this? I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Dennis Hussey from National Deadline in Birmingham, Dennis is a money advisor, has had thousands of hours of conversations with people in a range of different health situations, and I believe has even given advice live on Good Morning Britain, which must represent some kind of achievement in actually managing to get Piers Morgan to stop talking. So well done there, Dennis. We're also joined by Leo Miles. Leo leads the financial services policy program at Macmillan Cancer Support, was the person behind their successful industry changing partnerships, which include Lloyd's and Nationwide, and previously worked in financial service regulation. And I'm not sure if Leo has been on a, the breakfast television sofa already this morning, but we're certainly very glad to have her here with us today. And we also have a live internet studio audience, uh, and you're already sharing your experiences, questions and observations. And we're really interested in hearing what you are encountering at the moment. So do get them in now using the, uh, the chat and the question buttons, and we'll try to cover as much as we possibly can. Dennis, uh, prior to COVID-19, what were national deadlines seeing in terms of clients with a serious physical illness? Uh, hi, Chris. Yeah, um, historically, we've seen a, a, a fair proportion of, of clients using our service whose, um, whose, whose problems, whose financial problems are, are often exacerbated by serious and often long term physical illness. Obviously, the impact that has on their ability to work and earn a living and, and thus being thrown into the the benefit system which for many is uh, is often intimidating and and unnerving um especially if you've been struck by physical illness and maybe have very suddenly gone from a, a lifetime of working into having to negotiate uh the weird and wonderful ways of the department of work and pensions without any sort of 
prep or, or, or prior experience and it can be uh, very disconcerting. So that's always been a, a recurring feature uh, in, in the sort of client base that comes through to us. Okay. And what, what are you seeing um, at the moment? What's, what, what's changed? Well, um, I think at the moment we're obviously in the very early stages of seeing what uh, ripple effects uh, COVID and all that comes with it might be having. Um, these initial ripples are um, for, for many people coming in the form of um, those subject to furlough or simply loss of jobs altogether. We also have a lot of uh, self-employed uh, people who have had just work drop off altogether and again who are having to throw themselves headfirst into the, uh, the the benefit system one that they're maybe uh, not familiar with in the slightest um, certainly in terms of the people who are directly affected by COVID I'm not sure we're seeing anything more than the very tip of the iceberg in terms of how it's specifically affecting them obviously those most seriously affected are probably not even going to be in a position health-wise to approach services like ours just yet they're dealing with a very immediate uh, health impact of it but as time goes on I think we're going to to see uh, more and more inquiries come our way because of people who've been directly or indirectly affected by it. So it's a, a bit of a, a calm before the storm there Dennis how do, how do national debt lie in terms of, sort of the advice they're giving kind of start then to prepare themselves for dealing with these uh, COVID-related inquiries, is is there experience that you can draw upon from your work with clients with serious physical illnesses, or is this a, a whole new set of different challenges? I think more than anything, it's probably just going to be reflected in uh, increasing the sheer volume of demand that we see over time. I mean, we've got to be mindful in the medium to long term. We're, we're likely to see just as many. Uh, people approach us who have been affected by secondary and tertiary illnesses and conditions as as by COVID itself. Uh, obviously, we're all of a sudden having to become amateur epidemiologists, but I think it's it's been well publicised that even those who come through uh, COVID itself are quite likely to experience other debilitating conditions, which going into the, the future are still going to restrict their ability to be economically active uh, and who are therefore going to have to be more reliant on the benefit system and and equally forbearance from the likes of lenders, service providers and what have you. So I think as much as anything, we just have to be geared up and prepared to deal with that surge in demand to come after the current, as you put it, uh, calm before the storm. We'll come back to how we might prepare for that in the moment. But Leo, it's um, so prior to such, uh, the COVID-19 situation, kind of what were Macmillan hearing about financial difficulty among people living with cancer and kind of what, what's changed now? So I think um, you really helpfully outlined that in your introduction, Chris. Um, you know, the, the financial impact of cancer is, is a huge thing. Um, we were looking before COVID and in fact, probably um, sort of since since our early um, estimates of financial impact, which are about £570 a month, at a, a kind of worsening financial environment for people. So I think we're very much expecting those costs to increase. And now with COVID, I think, again, it's it's almost kind of an unpredictable factor. I think we know all the drivers of what's going to kind of worsen financial impact for people. We're just, as you say, in that kind of calm before the storm of not quite understanding yet exactly how severe it will be. Um, so, I mean, one of the reasons for, um, you know, 
uh, Dennis is absolutely right. Um, people, what we're seeing at the moment is kind of people first and foremost concentrating on their health, and obviously that's something that Macmillan is absolutely geared up to support with, and it's the you know main focus of our specialist our support line. Um, but we also invest hugely in financial specialist financial support services. So again, as Dennis says, you're seeing people when they have a cancer diagnosis sort of plunged headfirst into the benefit system for the very first time. So we've got a huge emphasis on emphasis on our welfare rights team and helping people to navigate that getting um, the full entitlements that they're um, eligible for, which very often they have absolutely no understanding of because they've been very far from the benefits system um, before their cancer diagnosis. And it sort of literally turns their financial situation upside down overnight. Um, and, you know, again, that sort of £570 impact is, mm. you know, so huge in terms of a kind of monthly income. How you even manage that is is extremely difficult for people. Um, so mm. one of our, our other services is our financial guidance service. And that was set up in response to an identified need for support with financial products and services. And so they provide guidance on people's big financial commitments, which is the other issue that they really, really want to have support with. Um, and it's quite an interesting time for us because actually one of the biggest questions that people ask us is about forbearance on mortgages. So we've actually been asking in the policy space for about um, six years um, that people have that kind of just peace of mind for three months so they can kind of sort out their health issues focus on that sort out their household finances and I think we've really struggled to get that um, and being told that you know that's not responsible lending it's going to impact credit files all these sorts of problems and then all of a sudden the entire population has been given that three-month payment holiday um, mm. with virtually no questions asked so kind of there's some really interesting points there about the difference um, but I think one of the things that we really need to keep in mind about the scale of serious illness is that, you know, currently there are nearly three million people living with cancer. And at the moment, you know, one in two people will, will have that diagnosis at some point in their lives. So if you take that and then you overlay COVID on that and what the impact of COVID could mean for people, that's that's a really huge and significant thing that firms are going to have to be dealing with. So are we going to see um, as, as, as diagnostic facilities come back online for cancer and uh, treatment um, uh, begins to to resume. Although I know from you know personal experience uh, through kind of friends and family that some people have still been receiving the, the chemotherapy under very kind of controlled um, conditions. Are we going to see an increase in the number of um, like cancer cases that lenders will, will start seeing? Is that is that what what's coming? Yes, I mean, unfortunately, I think that is is very much the case. So um, we have seen people having treatment postponed. Um, even people sort of very early stages after diagnosis, because, you know, obviously for some people it's really not safe to be in hospital because of the significant risks of, of COVID to them. Um, but that's really very much a kind of individual clinical decision. So that's why some people are still continuing to receive their treatment. Um, I think there's two factors for us. One is, you know, as the, as the cancer services in the NHS begin to kind of gear back up again to full capacity, so we will be seeing the effects of people who are resuming their treatments. And obviously, the financial impact of cancer happens differently, manifests differently at different stages. So these are what we call people's times of need. So there's going to be a slight change there that we anticipate seeing as to exactly that impact. And then, of course, you add on top of that, furloughing now we're looking out to October people who've moved on to statutory sick pay because they haven't been able to access the furlough and um, what might some of the increased costs look like so if people only can only feel safe going to hospital in a taxi and um, because they compromise the immune system you're going to have kind of travel costs increase um, so you know mm -hmm. they haven't been able to access the credit relief measures so we so we've got all these different variables that's suddenly been thrown into the mix 
um, that will sort of even, even more severely impact people. And then I think the second wave that we're expecting to see is where um, people have not been going to their GPs. So, you know, we haven't been seeing those diagnoses. And I think obviously this is a kind of very public um, concern that's kind of been in the press as well. Um, and people will start to come in formally into the sort of system and we'll see those diagnoses, we'll see treatments starting there. And, you know, obviously, again, that very significant financial need will be there. What we know about the existing financial impact, plus, as I say, all those other variables. Um, and I think, again, it's, you know, it's absolutely vital that we remember the, the connection between people's um, mental health and the financial impact of cancer mm. as well. So those stresses that you get and, you know, it, it significantly impacts people's overall well-being. So, you know, we are really gearing up our services to be able to support people across the board. Um, mm. But at the same time, it's a period of time when there's, you know, very stretched capacity as well. So that £570 a month that you quoted earlier, it could become £600, £700, £800 higher mm. uh, whilst people's incomes have been either axed depending on kind of what they're doing or where they've been furloughed and it's certainly been reduced. Sorry, I was just going to jump in on that, um, Chris. So when when, uh, when Leo mentioned that uh, sudden loss of uh, an average of £570, I think what you also need to bear in mind is that uh, there are so many people out there who have no sort of safety net in place already. Uh, I'm mm. sure Leo sees a lot of that uh, amongst uh, her services client base. Same for us by, by virtue of our work. We're probably dealing with a disproportionately high number of people who have no built in financial resilience, either in terms of having that savings pot to buffer them uh, when these kind of shocks come out of the blue, nor um, the just the, 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 the existing, if you like, savvy or, or awareness to navigate either, as we said, a benefit system they may not be familiar with or indeed uh, an awareness that there might be forbearance on offer from the likes of mortgage mm. lenders um, because it's not it's not always advertised terribly well. And often they're having to go and really hunt for it. Uh, either with our help or, or, or on their own initiative. And that's that's often not very straightforward, particularly if you're not a, a digital native or you don't have access to uh, the sorts of resources uh, online at home that many of us take for granted. Such an important point, Dennis, that, um, you know, we, that, that impact, that is an average impact. It's, you know, four in five people who are affected by it, but different groups with different baseline circumstances. It, so it was already up at sort of eight, some £860 a month for people with mortgages, and, you know, it, the segmentation of people's different capacity and capability and resilience obviously makes an absolutely huge difference. So 100 percent right. So, so Leah, th those figures are from um, the report, I think, that you led on. Uh, was it the price tag of cancer and cancer across the diagnosis? So if people wanted to um, uh, to find more about them there. Just a quick question, question before I, I move to a point from Emma, uh, who's just um, come up on the screen is how, do, how does the uh, the Macmillan uh, Financial Support Service and national deadline uh, work together. And by that, I mean, if, if, if we come across somebody who is experiencing uh, cancer uh, in, in our work as a commercial firm, do we just send them to Macmillan and there's no role for national deadline or is there a role for both to play? From our perspective, obviously, it's very much a case of please, please send them to Macmillan first, I think. Um, and that's, that's no disrespect, disrespect to national deadline here, obviously amazing. Um, I think the point for us is that, um, you know, it's when you, um, you know, when someone with cancer does discloses, it's a huge, huge thing. And what we at Macmillan would want to see is a really holistic approach to meeting their needs, because it's likely that they'll have other needs as well. 
Um, and obviously, we do have our specialist support services, so we can triage people through to our financial guidance service who would specifically deal with, deal with financial products and services. Um, we've also got our welfare rights team, so we will carry out a kind of overall holistic assessment for people about what support they need. Um, actually, if we um, see identify a need for people um, in you know severe financial difficulty to have debt advice, we will make a referral onto our um, debt advice partner, which is Step Change. Um, but again, obviously, you know, Money Advice Trust National Deadline um, also delivering fantastic debt advice. Yeah, I'd just add as well, Chris, that uh, obviously we, we predominantly operate as what we call a self-help service. And for the uninitiated, that means that we are setting out to equip people with the tools to uh, to resolve their difficulties independently. But we recognise that capacity to do that and ability varies massively from one individual to the next. So where we deem or where that person might indicate that they, they don't feel they have the confidence or the wherewithal to act on all that independently, we'll make sure that we're pointing them towards places that can offer more in the way of hands-on support. And so services like uh, Macmillan obviously fill really crucial gaps that we might not be able to plug entirely in our own rights. So there's a question here from Emma and it's, um, it's, it's a pertinent one. It's about uh, payment holidays. And there's a lot of discussion about payment holidays at the moment in terms of whether creditors and the regulator uh, should be thinking about support beyond a temporary financial measure. Should we, rather than seeing this as an interim solution, uh, should this become, well, Emma mentions permanent fixture, but a longer term uh, option. Dennis. Um, yeah, very good question. And um, in some ways, it's maybe worth uh, looking at different approaches by uh, sector, uh, depending upon the nature of the product and the service being offered. Um, I mean, if we start with the, the mortgage payment holidays you alluded to a few minutes ago and uh, and, and Leo mentioned uh, it's her uh, like exasperation that after lobbying for so long to try and encourage better practice from lenders, all of a sudden, they seem to have all come onto the same hymn sheets very quickly in this time of need. Uh, I think uh, as an organisation, we've always uh, campaigned and lobbied for um, stronger forbearance measures being offered by mortgage lenders as an industry. The fact is that mortgage lenders are in a, a position of relative strength. They're often talking about commitments they're making to customers over 10, 20, 25 years within which payment holidays of the sort that we've got right now are but a, a drop in the ocean, the blink of an eye. Uh, and so they they have capacity in most cases to take that sort of temporary shock, a shock which for them is very, very minor, but which for a struggling customer can make an enormous amount of difference. You know, people's well-being and livelihoods can, can hinge massively on whether their lender uh, is receptive to giving them some relief, whether that's for a month or three months or whatever it might be. So, yeah, we, we you know, we look forward to mortgage lenders in particular um, having a, a more open mind on what they can do to roll out that kind of support going mm. into the, the longer <laughs> term, because you know, shocks we're seeing here, they're not going to magically disappear when any initial outbreak eases off. It's a hugely important point because I think I, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but actually we are really concerned about the mortgage holiday measures. Um, and there's a few reasons why. 
So one of the things that we advocate for so strongly is that people have individualised assessments and um, specialist support wherever possible within um, lenders. Um, because obviously, as I said earlier, you know, there are 200 different types of cancer. People are at various stages in their journey. And it actually has to be about what's right for them for their short term and long term financial needs. And unfortunately, I think what's happened is it's an amazing thing that lenders have stepped up to this three month holiday, you know, probably urged a little bit by the government. Um, but there was no opportunity, unlike the, la the later credit measures, to respond to a consultation on that. It sort of just happened. And as I say, one of the things we would have said is actually we're nervous that that's just an off the shelf package. And it was only created with, with COVID in mind, thinking about what was potentially a short term situation. So for us, it's absolutely about ensuring people's um, you know, longer term resilience, keeping them well financially as well as well as well physically throughout their cancer journey. So it may not be that at this point in time, a three month holiday was the right thing because perhaps they hadn't had a reduction in income yet, but that would come later. And obviously, one of the things that happened was in order to cope with this massive volume of people, um, you know, things were made much easier. So you apply online, but that didn't create the friction where someone would have been able to have a meaningful conversation about their exact needs. And that's something we're going to kind of keep asking for is that in this transition post COVID, we kind of remember the forgotten seed cancer and other people with serious illnesses who are at different stages in their journey. But obviously, COVID's just come plowing into the middle of that. So, you know, where we've seen huge success and, you know, particularly with the partnerships that you talked about, Chris, where we've worked with Lloyds and with Nationwide, the core of those offers is a specialist support service where people can get support and guidance that's really tailored to their needs. So you know, there's something really positive about all this stepping up and about all these measures happening so quickly. But I think the real risk is that people will have taken those and not got what they needed for their specific circumstances. So I think that would be my biggest piece of you know, um, guidance or you know, my biggest ask for firms is to think so carefully about those people with those different, more complex additional mm -hmm. needs that were there when we went into this. Uh, I was just going to add as well that, um, you know, lenders are showing that they can roll out these mass blanket measures very quickly. Um, and the sort of individualised approach that uh, Leo has talked about there would really be the best case scenario. I'm sure, no doubt, that lenders will quote economies of scale and the, the relative costs of doing that. But that there really is, from our point of view, no better way of making sure that that individual customer gets a, a plan of action, a solution that is really tailor made for them. The, um, the questions have lit up. So um, I'm going to take a couple now. So, um, Dennis, maybe maybe the first one to you from Will. It's um, Will said to assist our clients experiencing financial difficulties as a company. Are we able to get access to the standard financial statement? And if so, what does this involve for us as a company? I don't know what Will's company um, uh, does. But uh, Dennis, any thoughts on uh, Will's question there? Uh, right. Yes, I'd probably uh, refer that to our uh, to our, our in-house team who, who are responsible for all things standard financial statement related. But uh, there is a, a licensing system, as I understand it, uh, for which applications can be made. So I think in theory, anyone uh, who, who can justify needing access to the uh, the statement can can request it. Uh, and as far as I understand, any uh, any uh, relevant applications where the justification can be made. Uh, would be looked at and, and, and granted all being well, um, but perhaps we'll be able to um, point Will in the direction of the uh, the department who handle such requests uh, afterwards. There's a, there's a couple of questions here uh, from uh, Pamela and from Mark, and I'll, I'll go to Leo first and then, um, then back to Dennis. And it's about um, uh, the emphasis on online measures of support. 
uh, at the moment, both for device, um, device services that run entirely online, um, and also in the way in which customers are expected to engage with online channels. Leo, uh, how does this work for people with, with serious illness? Um, it doesn't sound to me like one size fits all. Um, I think you're absolutely right, Chris. Um, the, I mean, I suppose the challenge with online is that it's it's fantastic when it works for people because things can happen really quickly, but it's very much a one size fits most. Um, and, you know, it, it sort of it really it's the same message. We would advocate for really tailored support where someone, I mean, at the very least can just have a conversation with someone. And those conversations are so absolutely critical um, because, they, you know, they can make a huge difference to people. And I, I just think, you know, through those online services, they won't get the level of detail that they need and the level of understanding of their circumstances and what's absolutely right. So, you know, I think I think there are places for both. There's definitely a place for online, especially if it makes it easier. And also sometimes, you know, particularly if there's like a chat function, people might find it that easier, particularly if they've got to talk about their cancer, which is, you know, hugely challenging and can be very painful for people. That's a positive. They might be able to engage um, more comfortably with with a with a chat as long as it's something that can actually provide them with sort of more tailored support or at least point them in a direction where there's more tailored support available. But I think on the whole, we would advocate that people, you know, can make a phone call, can speak to someone and as directly as possible. So they don't have to kind of follow a torturous route to get to the support they need. Again, that was one of the kind of key features of the, of the partnerships and the services was that there were very direct routes through the organisation where people could be re referred through, have a warm handover, potentially talk to someone who had uh, you know, more um, a deeper level of expertise and understanding of cancer. Um, so, so, you know, pros and cons, but fundamentally a telephone service, I think, is probably what's most helpful. And obviously our service is our financial guidance service is a telephone based service. So you can get through and speak to one of our guides. And actually, they also um, have offered quite a lot of advocacy for people. So I think Dennis mentioned earlier where, um, you know, we will try and equip people to go back to um, a lender and speak to them with a kind of greater understanding of what might be available or even speak on their behalf if it's something that they feel they absolutely can't do. Um, mm. And obviously, same thing with online, you know, people with cancer may have had as a consequence of their treatment something that makes it really difficult for them to use online things, you know, some cognitive impairment, you know, people going through treatment at the same time. So it, it's just really, really important to remember that some of those channels can present really serious barriers to access for people potentially they do have positives when used properly so the people i think a lot of people listen to be reassured by that let's just get a bit more under the surface and and, and dennis you know if someone needs face-to-face -face, uh advice um wh where do they go at the moment is there is there anything for them uh yeah great question um the 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 the, the shortest bluntest answer would be no not really um i don't know to what degree isolated um advice agencies out there may be accessing the the likes of zoom and what have you but my understanding so far is that if there are any that are making use of these new technologies that we're all becoming familiar with they are very much a vanishing minority uh in in the main um agencies and the likes of citizens advice bureaus that would have had their doors open are simply directing people to uh helplines or online chat hopefully over time um as this becomes the the new normal as much as i hate the phrase um then we would hopefully expect to see more and more of these services adding um online calling or video chats as a as an extra option for those who 
you still seek the reassurance that face-to-face interactions might offer, uh, but without necessarily having to leave the safety of their their own homes. But uh, it's very early days where that is concerned. I mean, I wanted to add as well that um, choice of channels is above all that the main thing in all of this. I think we need to do whatever we can to make sure that for every individual, there is some degree of choice as to how they access their advice. Um, Having uh, done live chat with clients for a few years now, it's been a real eye opener for me to see the degree to which people will open up and discuss things uh, through web chat that I might not have assumed would be the case when I first started working in that medium. And for, in fact, for many people, they feel vastly more comfortable having these interactions on a screen than, than over a, a, a phone line. But vice versa, in many cases, as well, it just does go to show that uh, every individual has their very personal views and experiences on what channels they feel most comfortable using. So I think that 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 option, that that's a diversity of channel, really important for us all to be able to offer that as far as we can. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. that was Pamela. That was- Hugely important point again, because obviously it's something we're exploring in the health service, health space. And I think we're almost forgetting because technology is moving so fast and the way we're doing things is moving so fast as a response to COVID that, I mean, I forget that I spend my entire life on Zooms and Skypes, you know, on video. But you're absolutely right, Dennis. That is a really key way for people, particularly when they have health concerns, I think, to be able to engage face to face with someone. But as you say, it's, you know, it's about the channel that suits people. But I think we might potentially see that getting increasingly important, particularly for people who are shielding, because I know that they feel hugely isolated um, and you know sometimes they have very limited contact during the day so almost seeing a face maybe for some people something that, that just makes such a huge difference particularly now we're looking at you know almost indefinite shielding potentially we just really don't know what that's going to look like for people and also those who are self-isolating who aren't you know who aren't shielded but are choosing or having to self-isolate so it's a really important yeah. thing to bear in mind. I guess as ever the difficulty is as things move very fast, uh, people get left behind. And um, But Helen and uh, Pamela have both mentioned uh, Helen's working an independent advice agency. They're doing telephone appointments. Uh, can be tricky, but uh, working fairly well. And Pamela's mentioned that community money advice were until I think pretty recently from what Pamela's written, offering face-to-face advice, but are now amending to a, a telephone service during social distancing. I wonder just kind of, there's a Rhiannon and Nekla and it's either George or Nicola. It's kind of um, distorted on my screen. It could be George and Nicola. Maybe it's a couple asking a question. That would be a first for the show. Um, just wanted to, when it comes to kind of serious illness and um, cancer and kind of beyond that as well, it can be a real time of confusion, anger, emotion, distress, and even more so now. So, Dennis, what, what have you learned about having these particular types of conversations through your time at National Deadline? Obviously, our role at the core is is, is to get to the, the the heart of the matter, and inevitably that in, that involves um, some degree of fact finding, sifting out the, the 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 facts, the figures, the dates, I suppose, from the wider narrative. But we recognise that your average Joe uh, can't necessarily cleanly distort one from the other. They can't present. A situation in in such a bloodless fashion to us it's got for them it's really important often for them to deliver it in the context of the wider story that that bigger narrative about how they got where they are right now the backdrop to it and a lot of it may not seem immediately relevant 
to their current financial predicament, but that makes it no less important for them. Uh, you, you realize that it's often a really important part and really cathartic part of the process for them to be able to unburden themselves of that story to someone that they don't know from Adam. Uh, and sometimes just letting that story run its course is as much a part of the advice process as the practical guidance you then go on to offer. And then as an advisor, it's for me to let them tell that story and then just to sift out and pick out the relevant data that's going to allow me to then present them with some practical step-by-step -step plans and, and solutions. And you find that even if it's a, a traumatic story to tell, simply being able to tell it obviously doesn't resolve anything there and then, but it is part of an ongoing process for them to be able to, to go through that. And, and I'm sure it's the, the case for a, an awful lot of um, Leo's client base as well at Macmillan. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's 100 percent true, Dennis. I think there's probably quite an important point here, which is, you know, hearing Dennis talking about the story and listening to the story and letting it letting it come out is. Um, you know, frontline staff aren't there to fix all the problems with people. You know, they they are lots of these things are just about people um, having, you know, being heard. And I think one of the things that we've always heard from people living with cancer is the most important thing is that people have a, a, some understanding, basic understanding of cancer, because I certainly back in 2014, when I first wrote, wrote, wrote our first policy report, you know, people were saying people were really unsympathetic. They had no idea, even, you know, fairly sort of common terminology like chemotherapy, what it meant. They made assumptions about what cancer looked like. And actually, you know, what's always, as I think I've said before, what's always absolutely critical is understanding where the person is at in their journey and therefore kind of being able to present the options that, that you know, are available and you think potentially as a staff member that they might need, um, whether that's getting them to a really a more specialised support team internally, perhaps a vulnerability team or something. But I don't, I think they, they want to be able to talk about their cancer, but perhaps not at length, um, because as I said before, it's kind of very painful sometimes mm. to talk about diagnosis. And, you know, people might even, some people go to their bank immediately because their first thought is, you know, what am I going to do about my finances? So, you know, in a very early situation where someone's just received their diagnosis, so that, that has to be really carefully handled. But at the same time, I think one of the really outstanding things that I have seen over the years, and actually it was it was what I spotted the first time in the research, was that frontline staff really want to do the right thing. That, you know, there's no one who's going to receive someone saying, I've, I've got cancer, and not feel like they want to help them. Um, so, you know, and, and in the early days, people were sometimes doing the wrong thing to try and do the right thing because there was such low awareness of vulnerability and firms just didn't have the policies and process in place. And I think, you know, we've come a really, really long way. But one of the really critical things at the moment is what we saw in our most recent research that so it's still only about 11 percent of people are, are disclosing their diagnosis to creditors. Um, but of those people, 5% phone up to say, I've got a cancer diagnosis, how can you help me? 6%, it comes out in conversation with staff. So mm -hmm. it's those really skillfully handled conversations that can, you know, elicit that disclosure because people feel comfortable talking to someone. And I think frontline staff, it, as pressured as they are, they're very good at having a sense that there's something else going on in the background here. And I think that's kind of what Dennis was saying as well. Um, and I think right now that's absolutely critical because what we are really wanting to see for people with cancer is, you know, that almost that question, which is, is there something else going on here? If, they, if they're kind of talking about their, their big relief package and can they have that? 
or do, are they not talking about the cancer and therefore having a different set of needs? So, you know, those conversations are utterly critical to mm. getting the outcomes that people need. Come to a couple of questions in a second. I've just... Um... Do keep the questions coming in and we're, we're also really interested in hearing about the support measures that you might have put in place for uh, COVID or serious illness. I'm just going to say that the kind of the Money Advice Trust have opened up their e-learning uh, archive and uh, an entirely free uh, access. So open access is a, a serious uh, illness e-learning uh, that's been made available. So if you're listening, and you want to have absolutely uh, nothing. I, I believe you don't even have to leave credit card details. That's usually the way they get you, isn't it? But uh, that's not there. You could use it. And um, that's all about that balance between uh, dealing with fact and dealing with feelings and getting to the nub of the matter. Dennis, you wanted to come in. Just to say, I think I think what, what Leo has just said underlines the the, the importance of, of you know people skills uh, when dealing with all this. No matter what practices or policies, organisations and service providers and banks put in place, it will always come down to the quality of the people they employ to act on those policies. Very broad statements and uh, social responsibility statements are all well and good, but it's got to you know the proof will be in the pudding and the stats that Leo cites there are, are really striking the fact that um, of the, the small proportion of people who disclose these conditions half the time it's actually teased out through the if you like the you know the uh, active listening the emotional intelligence of the staff at the other end of the phone or in the branch or wherever it might be um, and I, I think it just it just goes to show um, that just um, coming in at the right angle and having that open uh, stance and, and just demonstrating that that modicum of emotional intelligence can can reap so many rewards in terms of what encourages your customers to disclose. Because I say the stats indicate that most people don't see fit to disclose it. For some of them, they'll just be very sensitive about health and their outlook will be that that's my business. It's not the bank's affair. It's not the, the, the gas supplies affair. But you know, I do hear myself saying an awful lot that the more they know, the more they can offer. Uh, and you won't necessarily know the full degree of support that that institution can offer unless they have that disclosure from mm -hmm. you. They have to tread carefully. They're not going to want to ask intrusive leading questions. So there will be a degree of onus on you to to venture that information and to feel comfortable about disclosing it. And they want to obviously then expect a sympathetic ear from the other end. Can I take us to That's the other question. end? We're getting quite a lot of questions uh, coming in. Just take the other end and Leo, get your view on this as well as Dennis. It's the disclosure part is really, really important. But one thing that's often not talked about enough is um, is referral. Um, and Anthony's raised uh, a question here which relates to referral. So, Dennis, what are the absolute kind of um, golden kind of strategies for making uh, an a, a decent bit of signposting or referral to an external charity. I mean, too often uh, we hear from um, uh, consumers, people living with serious illness, that sometimes they're giving a whole host of numbers. Sometimes they're given no numbers. Sometimes the person giving the numbers doesn't know what the service is about. Um, what, what, what are the strategies that we should be employing with our staff for absolutely like grade A kind of um, signposting? Yeah, yeah, really valuable question. I'm glad it's asked because we, you know, as as an organisation on the receiving end of uh, a number of signposts, um, some are better directed than others. Yeah, we're always keen to 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 highlight what can be done to improve that journey. Um, for me, uh, the the main thing is uh, at least enough of an understanding about what the organisation you're signposting to can do. 
Um, it's really important to set expectations in terms of what they can and can't offer to take our service. As I've said earlier, it is a self-help service. So I think it's really important to just set out uh, a basic mission statement, which is that, you know, we will seek to equip people with the, 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 the tools to then address their situation themselves. What we won't be doing, for example, is engaging directly with creditors or handling negotiations for them. Um, you know, I'm not uh, keen to reel off a big list of the things that we don't do because, you know, I like to focus on, you know, the things that we do offer. But it is really important to leave that customer with a clear understanding of the nature of the service they're being given. You know, mm. the, the the worst examples are those where this where where someone has been told call national deadline, they'll sort it out. And a throwaway phrase like that, it, it does more harm than good because it just doesn't really, you can apply such a wide range of interpretations to that throwaway phrase. What what does it really lead them to? You can put your own interpretation at, they'll, what, they'll, they'll pay it off for me, they'll speak to them, they'll have a chat with me. What does that mean? You know, when people come to us then often very discombobulated and we have to explain things from scratch, which we don't mind doing, but it doesn't make for a very good journey. So just the other side of um, Anthony's question, Leo, when someone's signposted to Macmillan or we're signposting them, uh, what will happen? Just very briefly, can you just give us that nutshell? Well, I mean, I think, to be honest, I mean, obviously, we really, really want people to signpost to Macmillan. Um, I think it's a case of actually giving our um, our support line number. I mean, we are, I think I, I would venture to suggest that we're well enough known for our services and particularly for how we can support people with their health. It would be great if people will also raise awareness of our financial services, our financial support services, because I think that's probably a lesser known part of what we do. However, that said, what happens when you phone Macmillan is that you will, as I said earlier, kind of have a holistic, more holistic assessment through the support line. And if we identify that need for financial support, then, you know, you will be put through to the right service. Um, I think one thing I would really emphasise, though, is, you know, for us, one one of the reasons we work with, very closely with our partners is because we have a cross referral system. Um, in place so that um, partners can direct people, refer people indirectly to our guidance service and vice versa. We can get people into the more specialised support that they need at those firms. And that really is the gold standard because then we are able to provide a little bit of information each way about that person's circumstances. Because obviously one of the things that people have said over and over again to us is that they don't want to have to go and disclose their diagnosis over and over again and kind of start from fresh with people who don't know anything about them. And obviously that's, you know, we can't do that at scale. Um, but that's why our, our partnerships have been so critical that we can do that. But obviously, you know, getting that level of consistency across the sector is, is challenging. Um, so I guess it's saying, you know, we, we can make an assessment of people and hopefully get them to the right support that they need internally at Macmillan. Um, and we have that financial guidance in place. Uh, just to pick up on a couple of comments and questions, uh, Nicola's um, just mentioned um, it'd be helpful with organisations like National Deadline were just a bit clearer about what they, they do and don't do. Nicola refers to kind of a, a customer charter, and I'm sure that applies to many charities and many organisations, just sending out the same clarity of signals about what is done. Uh, if someone discloses uh, or someone needs to engage with you, as we, we ask creditors to do. Uh, Rhiannon is um, uh, saying here we've we've got a dedicated team to deal with customers who would be deemed vulnerable and how we manage their accounts. So picking up Leo on that um, case by case individual approach. But here's the uh, $64,000 question is kind of, um, I mean, 
what guidance do you both have on um, setting a frame of um, hold and assistance in terms of how long you hold that case for? How long is a payment holiday or forbearance when it comes to the serious illness? What should we what should we be drilling down into to work that out? Gosh, yeah, that's um, that 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 is a, a really good question. And again, it's going to sound trite, but um, you can only really uh, determine what an appropriate holiday is on a case by case basis. That's a very um, uh, aspirational aim because uh, we're talking about organisations with huge customer bases and working things out case by case is um, is uh, is time consuming. It's expensive and. They all have bottom lines that they're thinking about. Um, I think the key as much as anything is uh, a process of regular reviews uh, with the um, with the customers involved. Setting out initial payment holidays of a given length uh, might turn out to be um, longer than, than is needed. There can be changes in that person's circumstances that mean maybe they they can review their situation sooner than was anticipated. But in other cases, there, there's going to be a need to extend it beyond the, any initial holiday. Um, so I think really intensive case management strategies is is key for the organisations involved above all else. Absolutely. I 100 percent agree with Dennis. I mean, I think I keep like a broken record about, you know, in tailored and individualised support. The point is that someone's circumstances will change and may fluctuate from what they the original conversation that they had. So for us, it's about making sure that people can get back to the support that they initially had. And it's not a case of a one shot and off they go, you know, really being able to have the confidence to return to that support, to have a conversation again, to know that it's there. Um, you know, and also in terms of measures that are offered, I think, you know, one of the things perhaps I didn't say earlier was the fact that although those frontline conversations are absolutely critical, it's utterly vital that, that firms have in place the policies and processes that enable frontline staff to help people properly. So, for example, you know, I think one of the challenges we saw around the mortgages initially was they were off again, it was the sort of off shelf package. Um, and sometimes that might just create a cliff edge for people. So if they, you know, they've gone away with their payment holiday and but that didn't work. So, it, you know, it, it's it's intent, as, as Dennis says, intensive case management, um, if at all possible, because, you know, we understand the challenges of, of dealing with that at scale. But obviously, um, you know, if you can identify people with those specific needs, then perhaps it's more help. It's more possible to tailor, tailor to their needs. We're going to give the uh, links to uh, the Macmillan specialist um, support and also the e-learning link at the end of this podcast. So do stay tuned. I just want to take a, a couple of more questions before asking you, Leo, uh, a question about government um, and what people seriously illness need from government. But um, uh, it's George or Nicola. I can't quite read it. It's, it's, it's corrupted on the screen. Um, Racy say it's really interesting, which is isn't there too much of a heavy reliance on the endpoint on kind of post-diagnosis financial crisis management when much of what is being spoken about could be catered for by more detailed financial planning prior to diagnosis in a sense uh, prevention better being better than response leo well that's i mean that's a huge question and i think it probably goes back to you know some of the earlier conversation that we had about what we already know about the financial resilience of the nation um you know about people's level of financial capability I don't think it's you know there's no easy solution to that. Many have tried. You know we have um, the money and pension service. We have uh, financial capability programs. To be honest, I think at the moment it is a case of focusing on what we can do for people 
um, when they have been diagnosed. And that's, I mean, that obviously is very much Macmillan's space. Um, you know, it is, we help people absolutely from the point of diagnosis. But one of the things that we do is really try and wait, raise awareness of the financial impact of cancer. It's a very important strand of our work. So people do know. Um, but unfortunately, you know, very often, as I said, people's finances are turned upside down overnight and they, they haven't expected that impact because, you know, where would you go looking for that information? So I think that, you know, it's back to that point of improving the financial resilience of, of the nation. And at this moment in time, that is going to be an enormous challenge. Um, mm. But as I say, for us, raising awareness is a really significant point. I'd, I'd echo that there's a um, wider conversation about financial literacy and the education system being rolled out but again that's all about mending the stable door and at the moment I think as Leo said we're we're just desperately trying to retrieve the the horse that's already bolted out that door. Yeah and I think that's that why early intervention is utterly critical because you can't achieve the good outcomes for people if you don't pick them up early on when there are there are more options left. I think again that's something we see if people aren't picked up in the system early enough then you know there's very few options left to them. Now there are three conditions that automatically qualify as disabilities under the Equality Act Leo so can I put you on the spot I think you can probably get one of them just to cancer. set us up for what we need cancer that yeah absolutely <laughs> i can name the other yeah. two as well can you go on in full marks what yeah. the other two <laughs> so it's multiple sclerosis and hiv it's a fascinating point because i think there is such low awareness of those three disabilities or being recognized in their own right um so they effectively give an um, automatic entitlement to protection of the from the of the equality act and their class as protected characteristics and just my experience is there is such low awareness of that and it's such an important thing mm, so kind of given that the, the, they're hardwired into the equality act um and perhaps you could you can talk about cancer but also talk about other serious illnesses that um qualifies disabilities um what, what's what's the problem it's the 10th anniversary of the equality act um firms are are aware of it what what's not happening and what do government need to do i think the challenge is there's it, you know, the, the Equality Act is, is quite a complex piece of legislation. As I say, that that really low awareness of perhaps the, the, the specific conditions that it covers is, is a huge barrier. So there's an element of it, which is, oh, as with any legislation, it's a bit more of a compliance focus. It's kind of, oh, right, OK, we made things accessible. So I think there's quite a lot of focus on physical disability, which is absolutely vital because, you know, people face such huge access challenges physically, um, things like communications and I'd say the FSA is FCA, sorry, is a bit to blame for that, I feel, because you know, even in the recent vulnerability guidance draft, there's still quite a em- strong emphasis on just communications. Um, and actually, I think what we'd want to see is an environment where that's those disabilities are considered holistically. So what are people's overall support needs? How can they get access to products and services? Um, you know, where they don't have to keep overcoming the challenges that they face that other customers don't face. Um, so, for example, it's access to things that meet their needs and that might include specifically tailored forbearance, for example. So, you know, the, the, the things that those disabilities have in common is that they're progressive illnesses, which is exactly what we've been talking about, where people will have changing financial needs as, as their situations continue. Um, and unfortunately, I just don't think we're in, in the environment at the moment where all of that is sufficiently recognised and hardwired into perhaps firms' risk management frameworks, their approaches to vulnerability. Um, and I think it's something we've seen much more widely with the arrival of COVID is that in this attempt to cater to the mass, there's kind of been a slight setting aside of the Equality Act 
um, people's rights and entitlements um, because they're not they're not sufficiently considered up front. So I think my you know my advice to firms would be um, don't think about this as a compliance mindset. Um, and I'm not saying everyone is, but I think there's a risk of it. And um, in the purpose of the Equality Act is to protect individuals from unfair treatment, but it's also about promoting a fair and more equal society. So if you've got front of mind when you're thinking about any product or service development or even how you do things like responding to a pandemic, if that's front of your mind is, OK, what are the challenges that people with cancer, with MS, with HIV, with other disabilities might face in this circumstance? And what do they need that's slightly different, whether that's tailored support, a different phone number for them to phone because they might need to speak to someone on the phone those are all the sorts of things that actually kind of come quite naturally I guess if you're dealing with vulnerability but will really benefit those people and will be and I don't want to use the word but compliant with the Equality Act or at the very least acting in the spirit of the Equality Act which is you know the mm. working on the intent is so vital rather than saying okay well I've you know I've, that's check I've, I've done access I've done equality um you know that's that's fine Dennis, it's um, that that's Leo's ask from um, from government from from us. If you had one thing that you'd like firms to be doing more of, less of, uh, in terms of serious illness, what, what what would that be? Yeah, I think from um, from from firms themselves, um, yeah, we just want to see um, probably more proactive measures uh, to ensure that they're uh, that they're treating customers with the the kind of support that that Leo. Uh, so articulately and passionately advocates for uh, and not to get to the stage where they have to be herded into it by edicts from the Financial Conduct Authority or or from government. You know, we don't want to have to spend so much time and resource lobbying uh, organisations into these positions when uh, we know that actually that there's a lot to be said for the the cost benefits of having more effective processes in place um, to to manage these things proactively uh, and therefore not have to um, you know chase up loose ends left right and centre because people end up between the cracks and uh, and you know in many cases mm-hmm. run up arrears and problems and headaches that could have been avoided with a with a, a, a more customer faced and and uh, uh, customer oriented approach at the outset uh, in turn from their staff i think it's as much as you can train or coach this into anyone just that ongoing emphasis on um, compassion empathy uh, balance with a, a focus on practical measures um you know staff need to you know convey confidence and conviction about you know listening to these issues but also explaining what they can do to help what they can't do it's important to set those limits and set expectations of course uh, but above all else uh, the, the the key to all of this is you know is making sure that customers know they are heard they are understood that their concerns are being noted filed and and that they are you know that that, that is uh, recorded in such a way that mm. I think Leo alluded to this earlier, they're not going through the same hoops many times over and involved in some kind of labyrinth to get the sort of support that they need and deserve. Thank you, Dennis. Um, that brings us to the end. Leo, would you like to give us uh, the link for the uh, the specialist support service? Where can people go to find out more about Macmillan Cancer Support? The phone number on our website is 0808 And um, so it's a nice, simple number. Um, it's a free a free line and um we're seven days a week 8 a.m to 8 p.m 
Um, so, you know, we're, we're absolutely there to support people with um, concerns about COVID, about their health, but they should be able to get through our to our financial support services as well by going through our main support line. Dennis, remind us of the uh, national deadline number in 10 seconds. Yes, 0808 808 4000. And of course, people can get on nationaldeadline.org as well if they prefer web chat or to register online. They can jump between channels. Depends. Whatever suits them best at that moment in time. Super. Great. And the it's uh, moneyadvicetrust.org slash vulnerability for free access to the e-learning and also the accompanying e-learning guide on serious illness. So that brings us to the end of the conversation, but sadly not to a situation which I think is going to continue to unfold for all the customers we're working to support. So uh, thank you to Dennis, to Leo, to you, the audience. And until we speak next, stay safe. <laughs>